Well, we are week two in a sermon series called Render Unto Caesar. Today I want to take a look at the politics of the Bible, and particularly the politics of Jesus. I've heard Christians try to argue that the Bible is not political. And if they mean by that that the Bible doesn't talk about presidents and elections and Republicans and Democrats, then yeah, the Bible is not does not fit directly into our modern government, our modern political situation, and there, there are all kinds of political issues we bump up against that the Bible doesn't talk about. But, but, but the reality is that uh, to live out this book called the Bible is to think politically, is to think about the geopolitical realities that you live in. Okay, And the Bible itself though it doesn't deal with our politics, it really does wrestle with the politics of its day. It's a deeply political book. I've been surprised uh, as I prepped this sermon series four years ago, and I'm, I'm uh, rewriting it and working it this year, just how political the Bible is on every page. And so today yeah, I just want to look at the politics of the Bible and, uh, and maybe get you to think about reading the Bible a little differently because of it. I mean, at the very beginning of the Bible, there's this huge claim that people are made in the image of God. All of us. Inherently valuable and important. They're not the way because of what they can offer society. They're not their way, uh, the way because uh, of some extra. They're, they're just that way. People are valuable by their very existence. That's why it's such a problem when Cain kills Abel. And he asks, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. That was a radical message in and of itself. In those days, in the ancient world, you weren't responsible for your brothers and your sisters. You weren't responsible for your neighbors. You might be responsible for the people that are like you, part of your tribe, but you you weren't responsible for the people that weren't your tribe, people that were your enemy. And so, people are inherently important and valuable, but also, there's something wrong with people. A world that was decidedly good in creation is suddenly not so good. Society goes to chaos. The earth is flooded. Later, languages are confused so that people can't do evil uh, as well together as they could without the confusion of language. So people are inherently valuable, and yet people are also inherently uh, evil and bad and sinful. Both those things held true. And so God begins a plan to start fixing this problem of sin and evil and saving these valuable people. And it begins with a man named Abraham. And Abraham has promised that he will be a blessing to the nations or to the other people. This vision has a global sense and a national significance. God says in Genesis 18, starting in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall bless him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. 
So the sense is that what this this uh, this man is going to become a nation, and that nation is going to pursue justice and righteousness, and through it, other nations, other people groups are going to be blessed. So right from the beginning, uh, the the promises are about society. They're based on justice and righteousness. Generations later, the, the growing nation of Israel finds themselves as slaves in Egypt. This is a pivotal moment in the Old Testament. Okay, Are the promises of God going to come true, or are they not going to come true? Is God a God that's okay with slavery, or is God about freedom? Are those who are made in the image of God to be treated as commodities? Exodus defines how people should see others, especially the poor, the disenfranchised, the sojourner. And so in Deuteronomy 24, this is what it says. When you reap your harvest in the field, you shall forget a sheaf in the field. You shall not go back for it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the Lord your God, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather your grapes in the vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So, so you're not supposed to get rid of all your grapes, get rid of all your olives. You're not supposed to, to, to take care of your whole field. Why? Because you're supposed to take care of these. The sojourner, okay, the one that's living in your land that, doesn't, uh, that isn't a part of your group. The fatherless, the widow. Let's take care of them. It's part of the expectation of Israel because of all that they have gone through. Now, the 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 world in which Israel lived was not a world like we live. They, they didn't elect officials the same way. And, and early on, Israel was a theocracy. In other words, God rules. And he would sometimes raise up somebody like Moses or Joshua or Gideon or Deborah to guide the people. There would be Elijah and Elisha and other prophets who would speak to the people. But there's not the same kind of governmental structure. At the same time, they have trouble with other people groups and with other nations and, and in, in other battles. And so Israel decides they want to be like their neighbors and they want a king. But the prophet Samuel takes the request to God and, and comes back with a warning to the people. You can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He said, a king's going to reign over you. He's going to take your children to be servants and to be in the military. He's going to take a portion of your grain and vineyards. In other words, words, Samuel warns, kings and leaders are going to pursue their own agendas, their own gain at your expense. One of the problems with rulers, with leaders, is that that's what they end up doing. Why? Because they're sinful. We know that they are sinful. And people end up becoming a commodity. Okay, what happens in Exodus is what happens with the kings too. People become stuff. They become things. They become voters. They become clients. They become uh, they become commodities to be earned, to be bought, to be traded, to be won. And then when you, when you add in that corruption with religion, as often happened with the kings... They would lead the nation away from God and towards others. And they, they would lead with cruelty and the abuse of others. And in response, God calls up the prophets to speak out and to fight for justice of these people. They end up in exile. 
they end up losing their lands. And when they come back, they're still under the oppression of the Roman people. Okay? And so all the time when Israel is hearing the promises of the Old Testament, when they're thinking about the coming Messiah, they're thinking about it politically. When we turn to the New Testament, the focus of the, of the story moves from a nation to a person. Jesus steps on the scene and lives a very public and political life. He's born in the midst of a genocide as a king tries to, to, to kill him and uh, finds his reign threatened. Jesus, in his very existence, is a threat to the political authority of his day. Jesus is not killed, though. Joseph is told in a dream to go to Egypt. Think about that. Jesus was a Middle Eastern refugee who fled tyranny in his childhood to another country. Spends part of his life in Africa, afraid and is hidden away. The entire life of Jesus on earth is really a critique against the political structures of his day. Think about the people who Jesus spent time with and cared for. The poor, the disabled. He touches the untouchable leopards. He puts children on his knee at a time when, when you didn't do that kind of thing. He crosses racial and ethnic lines in his dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus has a relationship with women in his ministry that would have been shocking in his day. He did not care about the established laws that were about what could be done and couldn't be done on the Sabbath. He chose instead to help and to heal people. Some of his disciples were from very different political backgrounds. Some of them were just regular everyday fishermen. There's one called Simon who's, who's, who's called a zealot. This probably means he's an extreme nationalistic Jew who wanted to rebel against the Roman oppression, throw off the Rome and free Israel. Matthew, on the other hand, is a tax collector. Tax collectors are people who had sold out to the Roman Empire to be able to collect their taxes. I bet you Simon and Matthew got into some really interesting fights around the fire. Okay, they're from totally different ends of the political spectrum of Jesus' day. And think about the teachings of Jesus. In Jesus, people are valuable. Sinners are worth savoring. Lepers are worth he healing. Sheep are worth leaving to go find. Coins are worth tearing the house apart for. Samaritans can be examples of love. Jesus said, whatever you have done the least of these, you've done to me. No wonder the elites and those with power wanted to get rid of him, wanted to trap him. He was a living upset to their power structures. Jesus uses kingdom language. Talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This may not strike you as political language because you don't live in the kingdom, but in those days, they were in a kingdom, the Roman kingdom. Jesus was born. If he was born today, he might talk about the republic of heaven, the democracy of heaven, the nation of God, or the presidency or administration of God, but in his day, it was a kingdom and used kingdom language. When Jesus marches into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday, he does so with, with palm branches, nationalistic symbols, waving. He doesn't ride on a horse like a king would have in those days, like probably the king did that day. But he came in humbly on a donkey because his kingdom is different. This language becomes an important part of his trial. When Pilate enters uh, his headquarters and calls to Jesus and says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, 
Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it about me? Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came in. I come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Who everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says to him, "What is truth?" Out of John chapter 18. Understand the political moment of this: that the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, have already tried Jesus. They've already found him guilty, but they want to have him killed, which means he has to go to a Roman court. The only way you're going to get tried in a Roman court is if you've committed a Roman crime. You say you're the king. That's a Roman crime. So Pilate tries to pass it off to Herod. Okay, Herod as the king would be Herod would be much more threatened by this language than Pilate is. Herod sends it back to Pilate. And in the end, Jesus receives the death penalty from his politi- the political authority of his day after being tried by the religious and local authority of his day. Crucifixion is a sentence of political traitors. Okay? Not everybody gets crucified. Only political traitors get crucified. And when he dies, what does he die with? A sign saying that he's the king of the Jews over his head. This moment of the cross is the exodus moment of the New Testament. It is a sign of freedom and a call to others to see differently. It's a freedom from slave, from being a slave to sin and death. The resurrection is the ultimate sign of new life that Christians are pursuing. And then those early Christians, what, what's their rallying cry? They say, Jesus is Lord. That doesn't sound, that sounds like religious language to us, but, but in those days, you said that Caesar was Lord. Okay, Caesar is Lord. That's what everybody had to say. That's what you said when you greeted Roman authorities. That's what you said when in gatherings. But the early church decided to say Jesus is Lord, purposefully inserting Jesus into the place of Caesar. The early church is called an ecclesia. Ecclesia were gatherings that would happen when the Rome when Rome would win a territory. Okay, uh, the the word euangelion would be good news. They would they would gather in ecclesia. They'd gather the people. And they'd say, Evangelion, good news, we conquered a new people. And the early church says, well, we're gathering people, and we're announcing victory, but it's a very different kind of good news. It's deeply political language. Jesus said that the kingdom is not of this world, but, he, but, he, but the understanding of the end of the Bible is that it won't always be that way. Revelation 18.15 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, the end of the story is a political victory, a victory in this world. And there, people from every nation and tongue are going to confess. Some of the disciples thought it would happen right away. They asked at the ascension, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? See, they're still thinking Israel when God has this bigger sense of kingdom and of the political realities of this world. And until that day, until that ending, we sit here as followers of Jesus Christ, reading this book, 
And it's our job to look at the politics of our day and wonder what the principles, what, what the ideas of Jesus, what the example of Jesus means for us. We're to be informed by the Bible and inspired by the example of Jesus to live in this world. And to be informed by the Bible means that these stories and these ideas have to shape our imagination about what our world can be. It means having priorities that are set by His priorities. It means realizing that the Bible, from start to finish, pushes us into public life. Pushes us into a world that our faith in our hands that our faith is not a private thing, but is central to who we are, and it's central to what we take out into the world. For every position we take, we should be able to make a case of the Bible for it. To be inspired by the example of Jesus means that we approach our public and political life and involvement in the mold of Jesus. John Howard Yoder called Jesus a social critic and an agitator. A dropout from the social climb and a spokesman of a counterculture. Jesus did not hold public office. He did not become a priest. He was not a centurion. He did not have do any picketing. He did not do any political lobby. The authority of Jesus did not come from this earth. What he does is he creates an alternative community that's looking for a different world. Based on service. These people lived lives of joy and gratitude and love. And because of that, people took notice. They were once slaves, but they were now free. They understood that where their identifying citizenship really came from, and that it was a community based on humility. Humility, that's, that's a word kind of rare in our political world today. But these, these early Christ followers followed Christ's example. They were guided by the Bible. And they built the first hospital, the first orphanages. They came up and developed with the idea of adoption. They served others and worked for the betterment of the kingdom where they lived. They built strong churches to care for needs, to develop better citizens for the world. Later, a number of Christians would be influential in forming this nation around biblical themes of freedom and liberty. And so the call is for us to live this kind of life. Right, this kind of humble, serving, loving life. And I said it last week, I'm going to say it again. The best thing that we can do for our nation is to be faithful Christians, to be strong, faithful churches. And what we desperately need right now is for Christians to put Jesus first and to be guided by his word. Doing that involves political things, political action and involvement. It involves taking political stances, but driven by Christ and coming out of his model of service, not, not of collecting power, not of forcing our will, but living a life of love. That's the politics of Jesus. That's the politics of Scripture. That's how we should approach it.